Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today, on the show, as some sort of big, giant holiday treat for y'all, we have Gerard Cosloy of Matador Records, of Homestead Records, of 12XU Records fame, of, of Conflict Records fame, of Conflict Zine fame, of, of just music fame. Uh, all of that and more in a second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to DamienAbraham.com where there's an email address. You can send me an email. You can get in touch with me that way. You can also uh, find me over on various forms of social media at left for Damien. And if you would like to get in touch with me other ways, you can go over to Facebook.com and there's a Turn Out of Punk Facebook page. It's run by my brother, Tristan Abraham. Uh, and he will get the message to me while you're there. You'll also see that we post stuff that gets sent into the show, like flyers or, or any ephemera that pertains to guests or, you know, other things like that. So, you know, check that stuff out there. If you don't use Facebook and you want to check out that stuff, you can go over to turnoutapunk.tumblr.com and we post all that same stuff over on that Tumblr page as well. If you want to find a way to support the show, the best way to support this show, if you use iTunes, is by go over to iTunes, and uh, you can uh, subscribe to this podcast, write a review, rate it, and while you're there, you'll also see there's a bunch of other podcasts in this podcast feed, including Clobbering Time, hosted by myself and Tom Bryan. It's a wrestling podcast. Oil and Flowers, hosted by Buddha Blaze and myself, and that is a cannabis podcast. And then you will also see there is another podcast there called Turn Out of Punk Footnotes, which is hosted by myself and Chris O'Toole. And each week we dissect an episode of Turn Out of Punk and get we get really nerdy. You know, we get we get really in deep with all that sort of stuff. Um, and you know, if you saw us on tour, you got to meet Chris O'Toole. He is a fountain of knowledge and a uh, a great foil to myself on some of my opinions, and as am I to him on some of his opinions. Anyway, check out those shows. Subscribe to that. Uh, write a review. Rate that channel of these podcasts if you are so inclined. And if you don't use iTunes, and you would like to support this show. Tell all your friends about it. Tell anyone and everyone you know that would be interested in a podcast like this or a podcast like some of the other ones that are on there. And, uh, yeah, check them out. And also some of those podcasts are going to be leaving that feed soon. Oil and Flowers in the new year. It's going to have its own channel, so it will no longer be in the Turned Out of Punk feed. So all you cannabis haters out there that have been on me about, you know, why is that clogging up my feed, don't worry. You won't have to not download it anymore. It'll be gone from your memory. Uh, but, you know, be on the lookout if you do enjoy cannabis and want to subscribe to that. And also, Clobbering Time will be eventually doing that itself as well. Footnotes will always be here. Footnotes and Turn Out of Punk, they're kind of, uh, they're kind of uh, you know, um, attached to the hip. You know, speaking of attached to the hip, I guess that's all I have to do for the plugs. Oh, also go over to vice.com and check out uh, some of the stuff I do over there, including, if you haven't yet, Bloodlust, Tournament of Death documentary on YouTube, on, on Vice, and check that thing out. But anyway, on to uh, more pressing information involving this show. Recently, myself and Chris O'Toole just finished off doing the first Turned Out of Punk live tour 
We got to do a lot of really fun shows, got to interview some great people, have some great conversations, got to go to the Discord house, got to talk to Ian McKay. Not for a podcast. For all you people wondering, it was not for a podcast. It was for a podcast of two, Chris O'Toole and myself, and also Joe from Fugazi was there too. So it was a podcast of, of three and four if you count Ian, because there was like some debates. It was a... Oh, man. We'll get into all that on Footnotes. So listen to Footnotes if you want more of a rundown of that tour. But I want to say thank you to everyone that came out to those shows and everyone that came up to me after those shows and talked to me about this podcast. You know, it's, it's great to know that this actually, you know, reaches people and that people actually respond to the stuff that I'm saying. And so much so that people bought presents to me based on things that I had brought up on the show. So uh, thank you, everyone, for doing that. We, as I say, we will get into much more detail about the Turned Out of Punk Live tour on future episodes of Footnotes, and especially because I'm going to be airing all of those live shows that I did throughout the month of January. So there'll be a big you know, celebration, and you'll get to hear all those amazing guests. You won't get to experience in the same way you would have if you were there live, and I'm, there's probably going to have to be some stuff stuff that's cut. I'm going to be honest with you because some of the stuff, people worked a little blue for what I like to do here on Turn Out of Punk uh, in the live setting in some cases. So those will be edited. So, but you know, thank you to everyone that did come out and see those live. You will get a chance. Those of you who didn't get to do that live, you'll get a chance to hear them in the new year. But also Chris O'Toole, man, love you, Chris. Thank you for driving like that. You are a beast. Chris drove the whole way, you know, shepherded me from show to show, got up there on stage with me every night, you know, and, and, and we, uh, we bonded, we did nothing but talk punk for the entire time. So yeah. Anyway, uh, on to today's show today on the show, Gerard Cosloy is back for a part two to finish the year. And what a way to finish the year with one of my favorite guests I've ever gotten to have on the show back to discuss what pretty much amounts to a four-year period of his life. Uh, we don't even really get into too much stuff about Matador Records or anything like that. But my gosh, if you like Gigi Allen stories, if you like Nirvana stories, if you like music stories in general, this is the podcast for you. Uh, I'm not going to waste any more of your time blathering on uh, other than to say I hope everyone out there has a very happy holiday. Whatever you do, However you celebrate. And for everyone who gets mad at someone for saying, like, you know, happy holiday instead of Merry Christmas, it's like, don't you have bigger things to be worried about? You know, like, seriously, happy holiday. I'm, I'm very content to say that, you know, for everyone and anyone, everyone's holidays out there. Happy holiday. Uh, and sit back, relax, and enjoy Oh, before that, also, I will have shirts for sale. We will have shirts up in the new year, too, so you can order your Turned Out a Punk shirt. Okay. That's it for plugs. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy Gerard Cosloy on Turned Out a Punk for a part two. Gerard, welcome back for, I guess this is technically your third appearance on, on the Turned Out a Punk. Hey, be quiet. Be quiet. Sorry, sorry, Damien. I've got a... a, a Barky, uh, Barky Hound over here. He wanted to, well, he wanted to say hi to his legion of fans across the world. Exactly. Well, we we yeah. like cameos on this show, so yeah. uh, that's awesome. What's your dog's name? Uh, his name is Jake. Oh, Jake. Hello, Jake. Welcome to the show. Uh, and I guess, like as I said, Gerard I was just telling you, this is like your second appearance on this show, 
but your third appearance on Turn Out of Punk <laughs> as a whole being on Clobbering Time as well. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, th- I think you need to cast a wider web uh, for, for, for guests, to tell you the truth. <laughs> so, well, I, I, think, I think by the time I've been on four times, I, I, I suspect people will have had their fill. Well, you're drinking, uh, you're drinking from the rarefied air <laughs> that only, <laughs> only you and MVP are able to drink from. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I'm I'm in, I'm a good company. Exactly. Like there's very few uh there are very few twice appearances, let alone the thrice appearances. It's a rare club with just the two of you. So, uh welcome back. And Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, and as I was saying, I kind of want to continue on right from where we left off because when we left off, you had just moved to New York and you were living uh one room away from then Rob Zombie. And I think that's where we left it off last time. Yeah, I, I don't remember exactly, but yeah, there there was uh, a period. I'm going to guess this is probably around uh, 85 or so, 85, early 86, that I'm living in a basement on uh, East 13th Street in New York. Um, Rob and Sean from White Zombie are were the prior tenants in this um not entirely legal, uh, basement apartment. Um, for a while, uh, Victor Poison Tet from Rat Out Red R was living in the basement with us. Um, George Cartwright, the sax player was living upstairs. Uh, um, Joe Coleman, the, uh, the, the performance artist was living, uh, two doors away on the same street. You're burying Uh, the lead on that one, Gerard. He's also, uh, the lead singer of the steel tips. Yes, yes, of course. Um, Richard Kern lived a couple of blocks away on on Avenue B, so it was it was kind of uh, you know sort of your 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 New York uh, super scum uh, neighborhood at that time. <laughs> well, I guess was everyone hanging out with each other at that point too? Because it seems like you know for 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 my tastes, getting into this stuff, all of you existed in one world. So were you all existing in one uh, world? I mean, yes and no. I mean, there there definitely were like, like clicks and subclicks, but there definitely, for a time, there were sort of gangs of people who spent a lot of time together socially. I mean, when when Pussy Galore uh, moved to New York, uh, they were not entirely embraced by a lot of the older bands and whatever. But um, I mean, White Zombie were certainly friends with them, and that was that was kind of a, an ongoing an ongoing thing. It's not like there were dinner parties or whatnot, but cer- <laughs> certainly, certainly people did, did, did hang out a bit, but yeah, there was, there was kind of like an invisible like line in the sand between, uh, like the, the prior generation of Sonic youth, uh, swans, live skull, rat at red R and, uh, and the younger bands as typified by a, a, a pussy galore who were, um, yeah, newer arrivals in New York, but then again, lots of people in New York didn't grow up in New York, myself included. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, there was, I mean, yeah, I, I think, I mean, you could probably make a case that it was, you know, one, one big happy family, except, you know, like, like lots of families, they're, they're divided by generation. <laughs> were, were, the, were there any bands that kind of united everyone? Like, were there, I guess, like, you know, we're like people weren't really going to see the Ramones in the same way at that point, obviously. But like, were there any bands that kind of like bridged all the world? Would you say at that point? Uh, 
Not, I mean, not really. I mean, I think it was pretty fragmented. I mean, probably, probably the closest would have been Sonic Youth, and that uh, they were very adept, and, and they, they did this a lot when they would play. When they would play in New York, they would uh, really, really go out of their way to try to make for a, a, a more kind of comprehensive, interesting bill. And they would very often ask people to play with them who were both uh, peers, but in other cases, maybe younger bands who kind of looked up to them. Uh, or bands that uh, up until that point hadn't received any kind of a, uh, a real break in terms of visibility. So, um, you know, it wouldn't be unusual for them to play with somebody who had been, uh, you know, peers and buddies for a decade or so, but also a couple of younger bands that were a lot newer on the scene. Um, so that, I mean, there was always like a lot of like weird jockeying for position. I remember people you know, complaining about paydays after a show at the cat club once and sort of thinking, well, you know, who did everybody pay to see? <laughs> and, and like, you know, like boo hoo, you only got 300 bucks. That's 250 more than you would have made if you had played on your own. But, uh, I mean, look, I mean, stuff like that, you know, even, even today you hear, hear stories like that. So mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. absolutely. It's, so where were like, where were like the, um, when you first moved down there, what were some of the bands that you were kind of going, I guess it was like, was this all stuff that you were signing at that time? Or were there other bands you were kind of checking out? Like it's, you know, it's 84 in New York. Like, were you going to go and see any of the hardcore stuff that was happening or were you kind of over it by that point? Yeah, no, I was, I was, I mean, there were a few things I would go see. And, and frankly, I was not, you know, that was not a scene I was part of in New York. And the, the, those were not people who were, uh, were, were buddies of mine. Um, I mean, I went to some records a bunch of times and Dwayne was certainly a, a, a really nice guy and, and, and turned me on to a lot of great records, but, um, that was definitely not, you know, part of my thing. I did get to see, you know, the Cro-Mags and Agnostic Front and, and Warzone and Urban Waste and, and a lot of bands of that period. But, uh, I mean, you know, simply put, I was not really a fan of those bands, Mm-hmm. And uh, that definitely was not was not my crowd, for for lack of a better word. Um, anytime I went to like the the CDs matinees, I, I was absolutely the dude, way 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 <laughs> in the back. Like you like you you have the doorway, and I'm standing thirty feet beyond the doorway, <laughs> just to make sure I don't get my glasses smashed into eighty thousand pieces. Um, so. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I I went to a lot of shows, not so much because I was uh, scouting or looking for people to sign. That didn't really have a ton to do with it. It was more because uh, I was interested in who was who was playing, and I wanted to learn more. And, and you know, just as a as a fan of music primarily, and it's it's not super different from how I go to see shows now. Yeah, because we mentioned this on the last show, or I mentioned it, I should say, on the last show, that you are the fans' fan when it comes to to well, mu- music, but sports as well, well and wrestling. No, I, I mean, and you don't have to, I don't expect you to f- follow this up or say anything, but like, I really do think that you're like someone who goes to see bands, not because, and this is such a rarity in the music industry, not because you're scouting them, but because you like music. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there, there's other people who do that too. I'm certainly not the only one. No, you're I not mean, the only one, there's, but there's, there's certainly shows that I've been to where yeah. you were the only one, Gerard, not to cut you off. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I mean, yes, I mean, there actually have literally been shows where I was <laughs> the only person at the yeah, show. Exactly. That's that's kind of grim. I don't take any pride in that. It's, I mean, it's especially bad if you're the only person at the show and you're the promoter. That's a bad 
Yeah. That's probably a very bad sign. <laughs> it's, worse when, thing. it's worse than when you're than you're when you're in the band, though. Yeah, that's that's pretty bad too. I've been I've been on that uh, that end of it as well. So, uh, um, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, look, uh, it, it would be nice if I developed other interests after all this time. Uh, I, I should probably get into something else. You know, I mean, I mean, gardening is is pretty happening. <laughs> I'm told. Um, the, the, the food blogging scene, I, I may have crested already, but I guess there's always, there's always room for one more, but, um, but yeah, I mean, my, my interests are, are rather limited. So I, I plead guilty to that. Um, I was going to say, so with Homestead at that point, um, you know, like you, I guess you moved to New York. Does it feel like you're now in the music industry at all, or are you still kind of like doing your own thing? Just, just working at this label. You know, it's it's hard to say because uh, you know I think from the outside, you know, it, it probably looks like oh yeah, it's the music industry because Dutch East India Trading is a distributor and Homestead is a quote unquote record label. But I mean, we're way the fuck out there on Long Island. We're in a <laughs> pretty dead suburban neighborhood. We're not making any money. Um, it, it's I mean, it's the music industry technically, but it's really the super butt end of the music industry. And, uh, you know, the, the, the way that, uh, the next generation of indie labels would sort of be seen as sort of like the harbingers of what would happen next culturally and critically, the way that major labels would sort of, um, vulturize, cherry pick them, whatever. Um, that wasn't happening with labels like Homestead in the mid 1980s. We were, we were, um, maybe not as subterranean as a legit DIY label. But um, we we neither had the credibility of a DIY label uh, or the, the 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 resources to compete commercially, so it was kind of the worst of all possible worlds. So, <laughs> yeah. Yes, it it is strictly speaking the music industry, but um, such a such a shitty third rate version of it that uh, you know you wouldn't be compelled to sort of pat yourself on the back and be like, oh cool. We're in the biz. That, 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 that really wasn't happening. <laughs> that must have been a hell of a commute, too, every day. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I had a, a number of different means of getting to work every day. Sometimes it would be driving. Other times it would be the subway to the Long Island Radio Railroad, then walking. Um, yeah, I, I don't have many fond memories of that, <laughs> that particular journey. So. <laughs> Um, did your taste change at all when you moved to New York or was it already something that was kind of naturally happening when you were in Boston? No, I, I think my tastes were always probably growing a little bit over time. I mean, there was definitely things that, uh, I, I, I probably had little interest in, um, that over time I got more interested in just by being exposed to different bands and different records and also living in neighborhoods with different types of people. So uh, you know, however, uh, narrow my sort of focus on punk, whatever was thought of as indie rock, underground rock, whatever, uh, whether I liked it or not, I was definitely getting exposed to a lot of other things in terms of music from other parts of the world, music that rhythmically had a little bit more going on, uh, music that was not entirely song based, um, you know, whatever kind of flirtations I had with that stuff when I was a kid, uh, being in New York meant that I was kind of being barraged with it on a much more frequent basis. And, uh, and that was exciting. That was, that was definitely an exciting thing. I mean, New York was certainly a good place to be for that. And, um, 
probably did a lot to sort of kick me in the ass and, and make me think more about, um, you know, the, the whole notion of, uh, you know, music begins and ends here. Uh, in fact, that's not really the case. Music actually begins somewhere a lot further back and, uh, and the end point is actually nowhere in sight, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny. Cause like the scene, you know, like, I guess you're kind of like, uh, like, I don't know the, the scene, but like the, the stuff that was happening at that point, is like a, a genre that doesn't really have a name as far as I know, but it gets brought up on the show a lot. Like when bricks from the fall was on, she brought it up and there was like this kind of group of bands that sonically don't necessarily sound the same but they all, for some reason, exist in the same orbit. And it's like, you know, Pussy Galore, Sonic Youth, um, uh, like the Swans, uh, the Bad Sea, or uh, the Birthday Party. Um, mm. it, it it just feels like, was that, did it feel like a scene, or is that something after the fact that, you know? Yeah, no, it, it, it absolutely did, but like really kind of in a vague sense. Like you didn't ever actually feel like, those bands were like living in a house together, yeah. monkey style or, or, or that, you know, they were necessarily best buddies or whatever. But, um, yeah, like a, a, it's like a, a wider creative community. And you would sort of, you would sort of presume that like, just like for, for instance, if crime in the city solution were, mm-hmm. uh, playing New York, that you would see, uh, a lot of other musicians who were sort of of that era that you would see them at the show not because they were expected to be there, not because it was like, hey, we're the welcoming party or whatever, yeah. but this, that's, that's, that's kind of what you did. You were involved and you were curious. You were either a fan of these people because of the bands they'd been in before or, um, you know, it's just, it's, just, it's just what you did. And, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, there, there, there wasn't a name for it. There absolutely wasn't a name for it. I mean, in, indie rock uh, as a so-called, you know, institution or whatever that hadn't really come to be at that point. I mean, the phrase existed, but, uh, I don't think it was really until the Sebado song that, that people began <laughs> throwing it around left and right. And, and almost, I mean, almost instantly it, it became a joke. Almost instantly it was sort of, uh, a pejorative rather than an actual subgenre or something you would claim to be. I mean, by the time bands were actually referring to themselves, as indie rock, that was probably a pretty good sign they were lame. Yeah. It was, it was, it was sort of like declaring yourself a new wave band in, in 1979. It was sort of like an, an admission that you were sort of like a third or fourth generation thing that, that didn't have particularly broad or fully, fully formed, uh, a fully formed aesthetic. Uh, so, uh, you know, I mean, punk, as a term, I guess a lot of people thought it was played out, so you didn't hear that being used very often. And certainly that encompasses so many things. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it wasn't descriptive enough. I, I think, I, I could be wrong, but I feel like it was like, that Chris Gow was the first person to start using the uh, the phrase pig fuck. Okay, yeah. Uh, which I, at the time, didn't find very appealing <laughs> no. and, 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 and considered it to be kind of a dismissive... Um, a somewhat dismissive thing and a way of lumping a lot of people together who are actually very unique. Um, so the extent to which that actually became sort of a, like a bin card at the record store or a way for other journalists to classify bands. I mean, I understand how that stuff happens, but, um, again, I don't know a single band from that period that called themselves pig fuck or, 
um, appreciated it <laughs> in yeah. any fashion. It didn't really stick uh, around either. You don't really hear yeah. people looking back to the, <laughs> the great days of the big fuck scene. Yeah. So it's, I mean, look, it's, it's just one of those things where, I mean, especially if, if, if you're a journalist, uh, you know, you want to be able to put things in some sort of a context. And the fastest way to do that is if you've got a, a category or, or a catchphrase and, um, that's, I mean, I mean, that hasn't changed. That still exists today. The problem is sometimes the categories and the catchphrases have absolutely nothing to do with uh, what the band's motives were, what their inspirations are, what they hope to achieve. So um, you, you have you have to learn to, to look beyond that stuff. So where were you kind of finding out about bands at this point? Still, like, still from fanzines and, and I guess college radio. Is there, there definitely college radio in New York, obviously. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, college radio was still, you know, very, very important. And, uh, I, I don't feel like college radio in New York at that point in time was nearly as good as, uh, what was happening in Boston during the same period. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, WNYU had the new afternoon show, which still exists to this day. Um, Tim Somer had his show on, uh, on WNYU during the, the early to mid 1980s. Uh, WFMU was obviously, uh, you know, an incredibly, incredibly great radio station. Uh, at that point in time, you had WSIA in Staten Island, um, WFDU at Fairleigh Dickinson, uh, WPRB in Princeton. So there was, I mean, the region did have really good radio, but, uh, but zines, I mean, zines had a lot to do with it too. I mean, that was, you know, that era when forced exposure, uh, forced exposure Mark two, when, uh, when Byron, uh, joined up with Jimmy. That was really great. Uh, the offense newsletter out of Columbus, Ohio was, uh, was, was very strong. Um, I, I'm sure there's folks I'm forgetting, but, uh, ugly American out of New Jersey was, uh, I mean, I mean, we, we were talking before about people who were kind of mean and vicious. That was certainly a, a super mean and vicious zine, but very, very well written and very, uh, you know, very, very strong musical taste, um, away from the pulse beat, which, uh, only lasted a few issues, but uh, I, I wish I still had every copy of it. That was a really good one. Um, Flesh and Bones out of New Jersey, uh, Suburban Relapse out of Florida. Uh, it was, you know, that was really a golden age for great uh, for great American for great American zines. Well, it was just like the golden age for American underground culture. I guess this is like just before it bursts and becomes like you know, well, today mainstream culture, but like before it sort of starts percolating over to more mainstream this is like the golden era right i guess i mean i mean when you call it the golden era it, it's not as though again nobody nobody was really making any money off of it um no, it's not, no. It's not, well, that it's doesn't not, come till later we all know yeah, the golden era is yeah. not where you pay right this is the golden era right. of this podcast and believe me i'm not making yeah. a cent yeah but but in terms of uh in terms of a lot of great stuff happened and, and again it, it's it wasn't purely limited to uh, punk and hardcore and there's like this super sort of uh, codified underground thing. I mean, kicks as a zine had existed years earlier and that was really great on like a slightly more, uh, I don't want to say mainstream, but probably a little more on the pop singer songwriter end of things was, was matter out of Chicago, which was very good. Um, it certainly introduced a lot of, uh, a lot of great writers to the, to the, 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 the the popular uh, mindset of the day. A lot of a lot of Albini's best writing was in matter at that time. Um, 
So, uh, so yeah, it was, it was really, uh, really kind of blossoming. And yeah, I mean, you would go to a record store and there would be, you know, six or seven things to choose from to read. And that was, uh, you, you don't, you don't, you don't really have that today. Yeah, no, that's, it's true. And it's also, I guess for a while it felt like a lot of it was happening online, but it just seems like that the writing about this type of music has dried up a lot online. Yeah. In the same, well, maybe, maybe. And maybe that's, that's a bummer conversation. Let's move on to much more happy. <laughs> um, I, I guess like around this time is like, and now everyone's back together and friends again. This is when you guys, you and dinosaur junior kind of have the parting of ways, right? Uh, yeah, I'm going to guess that was probably around, uh, boy, my memory is really bad, but probably around 86 or so. Did, and, did, uh, sorry, go on. Yeah. And, and that, you know, uh, I mean, they'd done one album on Homestead, which, uh, initially was met with almost uh, total radio silence. Uh, but slowly over time, people began to get into it, and they certainly turned a lot of heads as a live band. I think the real breakthrough for them was around the time that Sonic Youth sort of took them under their wing and started giving them shows in New York. Um, that really changed the whole nature of Dinosaur's relationship to the audience. It suddenly went from them playing these very tiny shows in front of angry sound men pulling the plug to uh, much more sort of sympathetic audiences like who really got what they were doing. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I, I, I was certainly very hurt at the time that they left Homestead, but in retrospect, um, it was a pretty obvious move on their part. I mean, they kind of had to do it. Uh, on one hand, uh, they were being asked to record for the label that everybody wanted to be on, which, uh, and I'm referring to SST, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, SST at that point could not have been uh, a hotter label in terms of you know, where it was in everyone's consciousness. Um, I mean, it, it kind of dwarfed everything and everybody in, in American underground music, uh, Homestead included. I mean, Homestead was so many strides behind... You know, it's like, uh, you know, SST is secretariat and uh, Homestead is, is the horse that's uh, running in third or fourth, you know, or, or fifth, maybe. Um, so, I, I mean, it just in, in terms of, uh, you know, actually having any distribution and having the ability to sort of elevate a band beyond this, like, very tiny little um, subculture, uh, SST was obviously a much better label to be on. And uh, a lot of the stuff involving SST and their whatever, the legal issues, the financial issues, the accounting issues, none of that was really apparent at the time. None of that had really come to the fore yet. It wouldn't be for several years before that stuff began being talked about, whereas um, Homestead was having problems like almost immediately in, in terms of like ability to pay bills on time and pay royalties on time and deliver accounting statements anyone can make heads or tails of. So. Um, the idea that a band would want to leave Homestead to be on SST, that's like, that's a, that's a no brainer. Mm-hmm. That's like, that's like, I mean, I, I can't even, I, I can't even begin to imagine why somebody would have, would have turned that down. Um, I was, I was kind of bent out of shape with the way that particular thing happened. But again, you know, it's like conflict resolution is not everyone's style. And, uh, I've never been in a position as a recording artist where someone said, Hey, uh, why don't you, uh, leave your friend's sucky label for a label that's good. 
So, I mean, I don't know how I would have handled it. I don't know. I can't tell you that I would have handled it uh, with any more uh, grace and and uh, and and uh, forthrightness than, than Jay did. So, um, you know, it's I, I consider that all water under the bridge. That shit happened a long time ago, and uh, they went on to make some amazing records, obviously, and and, and continue to make amazing records. And uh, you know, I'm I'm. Uh, very very happy i played whatever part uh, however small in uh in getting their thing off the ground well yeah and like i obviously like you know i i think it's everything's in the past i've got that post on my instagram the photo of you guys all hanging out together recently so i know it's all in the past now but i think uh, the other thing i wanted to really kind of touch on was was sst really the only threat as far as taking bands away because it's not like major labels were really signing these artists at that time no, I mean, there, every now and then there'd be like some comedy of like getting a generic letter in the mail from a major label, like asking for free records, or there'd be some like weird third-hand story about, you know, like the A&R guy who is trying to be cool at the moment goes to a show. But yeah, there was never any serious talk about um, major labels swooping after those bands. I mean, but, I mean, by the time uh, Big Dipper left Homestead for Epic... Um, I mean, I think, I, I think that was the only example of a major label, uh, poaching a homestead band. And, uh, you know, it was sort of like, it was, it was hard to tell what, what was the worst decision on that part. On one hand, on, on one hand, uh, those guys were completely justified in wanting to get off homestead. On the other hand, uh, it, it didn't take a genius to know that, they were going to be, they were going to be one and done on Epic. I mean, it was like, uh, at that, at that point, uh, the whole, uh, cliche of major label signs band, they have no idea what to do with was so firmly established and was happening. So often just again, still pre Nirvana. So you couldn't even say, well, at least so-and-so is doing well. I mean, there was, there was nobody doing well. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean that 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 didn't really happen. I mean, uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, Big Black went went to went to Touch and Go, and uh, that you know I wouldn't characterize that as anything other than uh, a super smart move on 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 the part of both uh, both Corey and Steve. But they had a pre existing relationship. Um, Touch and Go was a great label musically. It was a great label uh, in a business sense. Uh, they certainly ran the, a very ethical operation. Um, so, I mean, there, there was no surprise there. Um, if, 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 if Homestead had done a better job uh, for Big Black, um, maybe they would have stayed, but probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't, doesn't say the label shouldn't have done a better job for them. Um, there, were, there were a number of other like distributor-run labels at the time. I mean, uh, Gem had PVC. Um, relativity, uh, I'm sorry, uh, important had relativity, uh, and combat, uh, Caroline had their in-house label. Uh, there was Enigma out in the West coast that had any number of labels. So there's probably more talk about those companies, uh, having an interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, again, it didn't really happen that much. It didn't, it didn't really come to play that often. Well, yeah, I guess it's like until Nirvana, that's when everything really, I guess, ultimately changes for everything right um with with sst it's kind of is it it's it's so weird to think that that label at one point had like like was 
the the big label, you know, and like had you know everyone like every yeah. big artist signed to them. And then it's you know like obviously they've had their fair share of sort of public issues with various bands that have been on those lab- that label. But it's amazing how it just kind of fell off at a certain point. Like they just didn't sign the next wave of bands. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's again, I mean, having not worked at SST and I, and I was having not been an SST recording artist, it's hard for me to speak with authority on it. But my recollection is that, um, there were a number of people in the organization that definitely had a lot to do with bringing certain bands into the fold. Not to the extent that they were considered like whatever an A and R person or whatnot, but uh, definitely people like uh, Joe, Joe Carducci and Ray Farrell um, definitely had a role in uh, bringing some of the bands in who were not necessarily uh, what you would call like the original SST family bands, mm-hmm. you know, like like Black Flag and all the various offshoots, and uh, you know they had huge huge commercial success. Uh, with a number of bands that were not part of that initial ilk, you know, obviously Who's Gurdu, Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Jr., Screaming Trees, uh, you know, uh, that's that's just off the top of my head. But I mean, those those bands all did uh, in- incredibly well on SST, um, Soundgarden, mm-hmm. um, and uh, what happened next? Uh, some of the people uh, left the company. That's part of it. Um, I think the other part of it was, uh, they, they seemed to have a release schedule and a roster that was by any measure unsustainable. I mean, they were just putting out an absolutely insane number of records, including a lot of records that people sort of thought were, um, kind of, uh, subpar or, or didn't need to exist. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I don't know if that's entirely fair. I think, uh, you know, if, you know, everyone's got a right to put out what they like. And uh, some of the records on SST that you might consider to be, um, you know, not entirely important to the label's story. Um, if, if Greg thought they were good, that's all that matters, you know. I mean, the, the guy started the label putting out his own band's records uh, at a point in time when uh, perhaps no, perhaps nobody else wanted to. So who who are, who are we to say who? Are, who, who, who are we to say that 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 Zoog's Rift uh, is not the most important SST artist of all time? <laughs> well, I was going to say the yeah. world has caught up a little bit with My War Side too. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, I don't know. I mean, uh, some of the records that SST put out, uh, you know, towards towards what we'll call the end, that were sort of uh, you know shit on. Um, if those records came out today in a limited edition to 200 on feeding tube, people would be like, Hey, this is fantastic. This is great. I mean, I think, I think that's the problem is that you, you, you build up this level of expectation of, Oh wow. They put out all these fantastic, uh, anthemic radio ready, uh, modern rock records. Uh, who are these weirdos? What the hell is this? Um, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's great that, uh, they were still committed to, uh, still committed to doing the really original challenging stuff. And, uh, and you still see that today in, in certain labels. I mean, I, I mean, you, you look at drag city today and all the amazing stuff they put out. And I'm sure there's, there's gotta be some grumbly person in their, uh, thirties or forties or fifties. Who's like, yeah, I remember the glory days of drag city. Why can't they just keep putting out, uh, 
you know, Bonnie Prince Billy and pavement <laughs> records over and over again. And, uh, you know, sorry, those guys, they're, they're still music fans and they like more than four bands. Yeah. You know, we get, we, we, we get that with Matador. We get these people who are like, yeah, you guys peaked in 1996. How come you don't put out GBV records all the time? You know, whatever. That's, that's not our problem. Yeah. But like it, and SST wasn't the only label, like obviously Homestead, like a lot of labels weren't able to make that transition. And, you know, I think Sub Pops had, you know, their fair share of well-publicized problems in that period immediately after Nirvana happened. But it's just like, it's almost like major labels just kind of came in and just took what they wanted to. And none of the labels were able to really kind of stay along for the ride for the next part of the story. Yeah, that's that, that's mostly true. Although obviously Sub Pop and Matador, you know, managed managed yeah. to hang for for quite a while. Well, Matador, um, like I don't know, and this I'd be interested to hear your take. But almost like Matador kind of comes in right at the the beginning of that that huge wave, right? Like the like yeah. nine, 90, 91. Is that when everything felt like it started to change? Or yeah, absolutely. I mean the the whole the whole period right after right after Nevermind and and. Uh, you know, the, the sort of uh, uh, trickle-down effect of that. That was something we didn't anticipate. That was something we didn't see coming, for sure. Yeah, like, how did that, like, I guess, like, Touch and Go, I guess, was another label that did transition to. Yes. And, and managed to take it, you know, obviously, they eventually closed down, but, like, they took it a lot further. But, like, why do you think there's so few labels that were able to kind of, like, you know, keep the bands? Was it just the bands unable to refuse these kind of major label offers when they were coming in or unable to meet the demands of bands that were required at that time period? Or it's, it's, it's hard to make a big generalization about it. I mean, the one thing that uh, I used to frequently hear in, in that era when bands would get approached was, you know, um, you know, well, if, if we go to the major, we're going to have better distribution and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's like if if uh, if everybody leaves the independent label they're on after one album, how is that independent label ever going to gain a foothold? How How is a label supposed to build up the relationships and the distribution network, et cetera, if they lose their big bands after one album every time? I mean, that was that was kind of our argument to Teenage Fan Club. Uh, who who ended up signing to uh, to Epic in the United States uh, after one album on Matador, um, you know? And I'm sorry, they uh, pardon me, they signed to, uh, to to Geffen Records in, in the United States. Um, but uh, but yeah, like how how are we ever going to be a proper label if everybody just bolts after one record? Mm-hmm. And we were ridiculously fortunate that most of our bigger bands actually stayed with us through some super lean times and us uh, learning how to do shit properly. And, uh, I mean, Pavement had no shortage of offers, uh, both the early and kind of early period in their the kind of middle period in their career. And they stayed with us the whole time. And uh, it was because they were on our label that we were able to, to get things done as far as uh, getting better distribution, hiring more people, signing more bands. Uh, I mean, they, I, I think they understood on some level that their value to us wasn't simply, you know, we're putting out a new record on this label in October. I think they actually understood that um, they, they were part of the foundation of something that was, that was hopefully going to help other bands. Um, and that, that didn't always exist with, with every record company. I mean, I mean, it certainly existed with Touch and Go. It certainly existed um, – Certainly existed with, with Drag City. Mm-hmm. 
And I guess that's like that, that makes all the difference, right? Like when these bands are able to kind of like stick around and, and be there for the label when they're having their success too, I, I guess that, that keeps the label around. Hopefully. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> well, I guess there's also, yeah, stories about like struggles when labels trying to adjust to the fact they've had a huge band, like a band that, that blew up on the roster and they still, you know, they, they can't cope with the growing pains, I guess, too. Yeah, well, again, that's that's the other. I mean, that was a very common phenomenon in the in the, the early '90s, and Albini wrote about it. Uh, you know, and that he he really did a great job of summing it up in that famous uh, thing that he did for the Baffler and Maximum Rock and Roll. That mm-hmm. that 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 some of your friends are already fucked. A piece that he wrote. Um, that the, the the very common phenomenon is uh, newish band makes a record for an independent label. Uh, they experience some measure of early acclaim, be it sales, be it college airplay, be it regional press, uh, like a like vague buzz, whatever, or a combination of all of the above, all that stuff. And uh, very early on, very early on, uh, people start kind of sidling up to them and saying, you know, you could be doing so much better. You know these, you know these chumps who run your record label. They're they're amateurs, and they don't really have their shit together. And you guys are so good. It would be such a tragedy if you didn't uh, grab the brass ring and do everything you possibly can to make a career out of this. And um, you know why aren't you daring yourself to be famous and, and all, all this kind of nonsense? I, I think I think Steve described it as someone just trying to appeal to your vanity. And uh, which I, th- I think is, you know, a rather craven thing. And, uh, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully we, 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 we don't engage in it uh, more often than uh, well, more often than we already have. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a crummy situation. But instead of like having an open conversation about how what small labels actually bring to the table, not purely as uh a B team or a feeder circuit, but how they actually make the world a better place. You instead kind of stick your nose in there and say, yeah, you know what? You guys could be, you know, you guys could be you know, doing so much better. Even though I individually have never lifted a finger to uh, make a record or sell a record, I'm going to get in your face and tell you how I can make you famous. It's kind of like that Jack chick, um, tract where uh where uh, lucifer um Lu- sorry lucifer yeah. uh, is telling the the hapless metal band how how huge they could be i mean there were there were dudes doing that all over new york and all over hollywood and some of them were entertainment lawyers some of them were actually ex-fanzine guys some of them were ex-college radio people some of them were ex-independent label people but they were all over the place and um not a lot of bands came out of it with uh, much to show for it. Some of them ended up making the worst records of their career and uh, ended up uh, ended up in debt for their troubles. Well, before we get into the, this whole, I guess, post-Nirvana era too much, one th- person we got to discuss who I don't think was ever in jeopardy of falling into this trap was <laughs> your former bandmate and rock and roll icon of sorts, Gigi Allen. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't think the Gige ever got uh, chatted up um, 
by a major label uh, person after a show telling him he could be doing so much better. Yeah, <laughs> I don't that think probably so. that probably didn't happen. <laughs> somebody, so. somebody, somebody wearing a hazmat suit goes up to Gigi and is like, <laughs> "So pleased to make your acquaintance." The thing is, though, in 2016, do you think he would be approached? I think he would. Uh, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. I mean, certainly there, there's a, there's a lot of there would be a lot of notoriety attached to it. There definitely. I mean, be. I mean, I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine Gigi on social media? Oh, his Instagram would be on fleek. Yeah, that would be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be great. <laughs> that'd be amazing. Uh, when um, I guess like so, when did you first uh, meet uh, uh, Mr. Allen? Um. Well, keep in mind, I, I mean, I grew up in the Boston area, yeah. so I, I was very aware of Gigi because he was from New Hampshire, and uh, certainly at, at some point in the well, actually, let's early- yeah, let's start stop before we go any further. Uh, this now is turned out of Gigi Allen, uh, yeah. So, which is uh, when did you first yeah hear about Gigi Allen? I guess is the best way to put it. Um, he was he was sending out records to zines and stuff. Okay. Uh, so there were there were singles and uh, that that first the first album on Orange that I got in the mail, and uh, you know I, th- I think around the time the singles were coming out, he was pretty much banned from playing in Boston. Um, I, I think the Jabbers played the Rat once, and I don't believe they were asked back. I think there was a subsequent incident, a, a somewhat famous incident at the time, where he sucker punched Martin Atkins. At a at a at a um, what's the what's the show? Um, uh, he sucker punched Martin Atkins at a Brian Brain show. Oh my god! And uh, and I think injured him pretty seriously. And um, I think after that he was banned from the Rat for life. And a number of other Boston clubs, I think, probably followed suit. So that was a bit of a career uh, obstacle for the Jeej. If, if you can't play any shows in the, the city closest to you. Um, but yeah, I remember like Boston rock wrote something about, um, Gigi, like bludgeoning Martin Atkins at this show. And, uh, he wrote an amazing letter, like the following issue that was sort of like, you know, like I did not, like I did not punch Brian brain in the face and cut his eye open. And so what, and so what if I did, <laughs> Um, yeah, so like the the early the early era of cognitive uh, dissonance uh, with 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 uh, Gigi Allen, um, but yeah, I mean you know those those early records were certainly super funny, super catchy, um, but there there was a period where kind of like the the more kind of power poppy element of Gigi kind of began to to degenerate mm-hmm. and turn into something. Uh, a lot less musical and a lot more kind of single-mindedly profane. And, um, I think that was probably around the time that I, I really began to appreciate his thing and like kind of decided that uh, these records were either genius or they were, were reverse genius or they were both. I mean, they were so horribly recorded. Like you would hear these like insane guitar solos kind of punched in out of nowhere there's this guy who's like he's trying to rhyme the word hand with hand, and, and uh, it was like I mean it it, it kind of became an obsession for me. Also knowing that 
Um, he couldn't have been less hip at the time. I mean, people really like either despised him or, or just kind of revolted by him. This was this was certainly before he like kind of became adopted by uh, everybody in the punk and hardcore community as sort of a um, iconic figure. I mean, he was really more an object of uh, of, of, uh, of uh, derision at, at this point in time. Yeah, like who would he play with? Like what scene would he kind of fit in at this point? There, there was really no scene. I mean, he really was like kind of like reduced. Like he was already like on the whole thing of like doing the Greyhound bus tours and, and playing with different pickup bands in every city. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of these shows were sort of like the early days of, of house shows or like shows where like a club owner would be talked into booking Gigi and then like find out the day of the show, what he was dealing with. Like, Oh my God, he's only wearing a jock strap. Oh my God. He's guzzling from a bottle of Kaopectate. Oh no. <laughs> Oh no! Why didn't someone tell me this was going to happen? I mean, keep in mind there was no Google then. No, if, if you were if you were the the poor the poor motherfucker running the club, <laughs> and you allowed someone to put the show on, like ch- chances are you didn't have the ability to like research it ahead of time and find out that you were possibly in for You're a huge li- up huge a huge liability lawsuit. Um, so yeah, I was I was definitely definitely a fan, and um, you know. Uh, a couple of years after this initial contact with him began corresponding a bit, uh, did an interview with him for the zine. Um, Michael board, who I was friends with back in those days, um, had an idea to, well, they did uh, a split, right? Artless and, and GGI. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But my, a few years after that, Michael board, uh, talked, uh, Neil Cooper at, uh, at roar, reach out international mm-hmm. guys who did the, Bad Brains tape and the Suicide tape and all this other amazing stuff. Uh, he talked um, Roar into giving him some money uh, to record a, a, a live show in New York. Um, so Michael essentially put together um, this for, I, I'm being a little facetious here, sort of an all-star band uh, to play behind Gigi. Uh, and it was uh, Jay Maskus. Uh, myself, um, Mike Edison from uh, from Sharky's Machine, previously Killdozer, not the Wisconsin Killdozer. Um, Steve uh, Steve Danziger from Pianosaurus, um, Kramer from uh, from Bongwater, and a number <laughs> of other great bands. Um, we put put this band together. Uh, we rehearsed once with someone videotaping it. Um, the show that we played at the cat club, I think was promoted by Steve blush of, uh, seconds magazine infamy. And, uh, the I think you also mean America hardcore infamy. Yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah. Fantastic, fantastic. Fantastic writer, that guy. He's amazing. I said infamy. I said infamy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's like you know he he's that, that that guy that guy's to music what John Taffer is to uh, the tavern business. Um, actually, no, that's not fair to John Taffer. Um, so yeah, we we played this show at the Cat Club, and the the plug got pulled after like, three songs because you know there was so much coming out of Gigi, so much coming out of him. 
You know that expression, he left it all on the stage? Do you know that expression? <laughs> yes, I do. Well, that, that expression has never been more appropriate because Gigi <laughs> really did leave it all. Well, actually, no. He left it all on the stage except for what he chose to throw at the audience. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, yeah, the plug got pulled. And, uh, yeah, that was a bad, that was a bad, ugly, ugly night. But, uh yeah, some of that stuff ended up on the Roar um, Hated in the Nation uh, compilation, which they, they compiled a lot of stuff from the records, but also used some of the rehearsal recordings and some <coughs> of the Sorry. stuff from that show. And um, it was it was after that that uh, Gigi and I began talking about making a record for Homestead, which, uh, you know, one of the more ill-advised decisions of my life. I actually, I actually played on that record and uh, have some songwriting credits on it. Uh, I, I, need, I need to stress I have nothing to do with the uh, the lyrical content. Um, nothing whatsoever to do with the lyrical content. But, uh, you know, there were re-recordings of some older songs. Mike Edison co-wrote some of the songs in that record. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's the You Give Love a Bad Name record, which came out on Homestead. Yep. Um, that was followed by... Um, it was a seven inch yeah. as well. Uh, very, the, very poorly named seven inch. Was that the uh, expose yourself to kids seven inch? <laughs> yes, that's the one. Yeah, I think Chris Brokaw plays on that. I think Chris Brokaw and William Weber of from Crumb Cranks are on that one. Wow, that is another all star band. Yeah, another all star band, and uh, and then there's a subsequent. Then there's a second Homestead record, uh, the Freaks, Faggots, and Junkies album. Which uh, is a there's a different band. I believe that's a that's a New Hampshire band, uh, either either a New Hampshire or a Boston based band on that one. So are you only um, a Holy Man? Like that's your only lineup of the Jeej? I'm I'm in I'm in that 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 New York band the um, the other one the, that he did the, the so-called Super Scum, and then there's the uh, there's a couple of shows I played. Um, that I, I think were probably billed as 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 the Murderers, but. Um, there's another band, another like again New Hampshire based lineup of the Murderers that I have no, had, had no uh, no involvement with, and that band certainly lasted a lot, a lot more than two shows. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I mean to, to use the baseball expression, I had a cup of coffee with Gigi Allen, um, or rather a cup of Kaopectate, and um, and yeah, it uh, like like they used to say about the Vietnam War, it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> Someone, someone's got to get Pete Frame to do a Rock Trees of Gigi Allen lineups. Yeah, that would be great. Well, you know, if if you did a Pete Frame, uh, Gigi Allen family tree, I mean, you would see some amazing connections. I mean, you you would have you have you have Wayne Kramer in there. You have Cheetah Chrome in there. You have Emily X Y Z. You've got Chris Brokaw. I mean, through 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 the David Peel connection, uh, Gigi's only one degree of separation from John Lennon. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, I mean, that's. I, I think that's that's pretty amazing that if you can actually say that Gigi's only a, a degree of separation away from the Beatles, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I, I used to. I any you know I I used, I used to give my ex wife grief about that because she was a, she's a huge huge Beatles fan and loves the Beatles and she's a, a fantastic uh, musician in her own right and um, you know I. I took a lot of pride in being able to say to her, you know, well, you know, I'm only, I'm only two degrees of separation away from the Beatles. 
<laughs> Which is such, such a terrible, unfair thing to say. It's, well, no, it's, it's completely, true, though. I know, it's true, but it's, it's so completely unwarranted and, and like... I mean, talk talk about like undeserved. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> hey, like I, if I take my, I think it's, I think we got it down to eight degrees of separation from Avril Lavigne in Earth Crisis. You can gladly take the three <laughs> degrees from from John Lennon. Oh man, I forgot about that. That's great. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, no, but that that like it it is also amazing when you think of it. Like even just you know Jay playing in it. Did Thurston Moore ever play in a lineup of Gigi Allen or no? No. no, Thurston. Thurston was invited to play in that um, that that so-called New York Super Scum thing yeah. that the board set up. He may even have he may have even had his name on the flyer for the show. Okay, but um, he either never agreed to do it or just couldn't make it. And uh, I mean, Jay was a very last-minute replacement. Jay came in the day of the rehearsals and uh, like learned the songs in about five seconds. Not not that they were difficult songs to learn. No, and but also Jay is a Noiseville recording artist, so his association. Oh no, no <laughs> was was his action swinger seven inch on Noiseville or no? Do you play on the second record? Uh, I don't think he's on that one. Oh I yeah, could be wrong. It's Johan Kugelberg. Yeah, which I guess uh, that that is another. Yo, 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 Johan's on the first one. Johan's on the first one, which is on Noiseville. The first one is. Uh, are you sure? I'm ninety percent sure, and I only think this because I have all my Noiseville records in a box together, separated from my other records. Not because I dislike them, but because I collect records on. <laughs> I think that is a that to me is like, you know, we were talking before about how there's very few things that bridge those two worlds of like New York hardcore and this other New York scene that we're kind of talking about. That label is like one of the only things that I can think of that does. Yeah, you're right. You're right about that. It is on Noiseville, the first seven inch. Burn, uh, burn my trip. Okay, I, I I stand corrected. You know, and I'm only saying this because I went to the resource, aka Discogs, to double check myself on this because I would never, I would never want to stand toe to toe against anyone in Rock and Roll Jeopardy, uh, like more than you. Like you would be the person I would love to see just destroy me in that because you have more music knowledge than just about anyone I've ever met in my life. Well, I, I have, I have Google is what I have. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, that's what I'm also using too. So, but that's what I had to use to back up myself. But, uh, but yeah, so I guess Jay plays on the second one, fear of a fucked up planet. Yeah. Which brings it, uh, back to me. Um, but, uh, you know, like was, I, I guess, you know, moving back to Gigi Allen and, uh, before we transition <laughs> off that, uh, please, please, <laughs> Was there negative feedback to it at the time? Was it like something you had to deal yeah, with? Yeah, there, there was. Yeah, there, there was. I mean, uh, I mean, keep in mind again, Homestead was so badly organized and uh, so shitty at any kind of promo or marketing that for a lot of people in the kind of wider music community, um, they wouldn't have even known about the record. So, yeah, the, the ability to sort of get blacklisted or or be just you know shunned association with Gigi a lot of people simply just wouldn't have even known about it but even within our own little corner of uh, you know the the indie rock universe there definitely were people who weren't into it I mean people there were people who disliked him and thought he was stupid and obviously there were people who believed that the uh, the content was uh, you know um, juvenile and misogynistic and uh, just you know the wrong the wrong kind of shit for any number of reasons and um, there were a couple of people working at Dutch East at the time 
uh, who kind of said, like, I don't think I can sell this. Like, not because stores don't want it, but just simply I, I, have, a, I have an issue getting on the phone asking someone to buy this record. I don't want to be associated with it. Yeah. So, um, so that was uncomfortable. And there were a couple of bands on the label. I mean, again, I don't want to name any names, but there were certainly were people who kind of made it clear to me that they were not thrilled about being associated with this guy, his history, his whole, his whole thing. It was, it was not something they, they found particularly cool. Were there bands that you were like, cause you did work with like controversial artists. Were there bands and artists that approached Homestead or that you were even in talks with that at some point you were just like, I can't, I can't do this. This is too much even for me. Uh, I can't think of anything like that. Off, I, th- I think if there was anybody I didn't work with, it probably had more to do with just not being able to work with them rather than it being a content issue. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, uh, there, there were, I mean, Funnily enough, I mean, the Frogs probably generated more actual controversy and and bad will than Gigi did, which I, I think says a lot about um, how how uh, explosive that record was mm-hmm. um, and where where people's heads were at. I mean, the Frogs. Uh, I definitely had more people say to me, "I have a problem with you because of the Frogs" than because of Gigi Allen. So. Yeah, I guess now it would be interesting to see which would be like, which would have more uh, of a Twitter bl- backlash to it, Gigi or the Frogs, and I imagine probably Gigi. Yeah, I'm not so sure. I think I think uh, I think they would probably be running be running neck and neck for entirely different reasons. Yeah, you're tr- probably right on that one. I think Gigi though has some real dubious stuff in in, in real life and outside of lyrical content too. Maybe. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's, a, that's a hard one to argue with. And again, you know, I, I, you and I have probably had the conversation before about the importance of separating the art from the artist. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I think I'm of the opinion that that's a, I think that's as somebody who's trying to learn about art, that's a very interesting idea. Um, but it's, it's easier to do that if you're able to insulate yourself from uh, the terrible things the artist has done to other people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, uh, again, uh, I, I don't, I don't think a lot of, I don't think much good is served me speaking ill of the dead, but, um, you know, uh, Gigi is certainly somebody who, uh, you know, uh, you know, did, did some, did some pretty rotten things to people. And, uh, you know, went, uh, served, uh, served time in the pokey for it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there was absolutely a point in time where I, I couldn't work with them anymore. And, um, yeah, that's, that's how it is. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of not being able to work with it anymore, there was a point where you couldn't do that with Homestead as well. <laughs> yeah. Probably about five years too late, but <laughs> <laughs> what was the straw that broke the, the, proverbial camel's back um it's not a very exciting story i mean there, there was no like big blow up or or dramatic thing i mean i had been there for for five and a half years uh you know the the working environment was pretty negative the uh the fellow who owned the parent company while he i i certainly owe him a debt of gratitude for letting a, a kid put out so many weird records he was not big on positive reinforcement. He was not a particularly supportive guy. 
and musically it was clearly clearly not his thing and uh he and his sort of uh inner circle seemed very suspicious of people who uh who were music fans or people who really did care about the bands and um towards the very end of 1989 i i learned a uh, third hand uh, that one of my, my, my own, my, my sole colleague at the label, um, Craig Marks, uh, was applying for a job elsewhere. And, uh, I kind of knew at that moment that if he was going to leave, uh, that the label's owner was probably not going to find the cash to hire a replacement Mm -hmm. or, or really give me much say in who the replacement was. And, uh, I, I think at that point, I had reached the, the 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 spot on the whatever the map where um you know I, up up until then I'd always believed that Homestead was probably doing more good than harm and maybe like kind of like fifty one percent to forty nine percent and I, I really felt like we were at the point where it was going to flip over to <laughs> doing more doing more harm than good we were very close to doing doing bands much more harm than good. And uh, I really, really couldn't hang around and watch it and watch it and watch it happen any longer. So uh, he and I both uh, went to Barry the same day and said, uh, "Yeah, we're we're out of here. We're given notice." And um, Barry didn't try to talk us out of it. He was just like, "Okay, thanks. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck in your future things." And um, I mean, I, I I gave two weeks' notice and. Uh, I think like maybe the, the following day, uh, he said to me, uh, yeah, don't, don't bother finishing out the two weeks. You're, you're done. You're, we, you're, thank you. You're, you can, you can get your shit out of your office now. So, um, so that was it. That was the end of, uh, that was the end of me and, uh, Homestead. That's a pretty incredible run you had though. Like, you know, like obviously not the best ending. Um, but like, you know, that's like a, a five-year run as like someone for their first time A&Ring at a label. Yeah, I mean, I had I had a little bit of prior experience with some smaller shit I did on my own, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was you know, look, I mean, there were a lot of good records, and uh, unfortunately, um, as a business, it was very very poorly run. Um, uh, it was it was a it was a good learning experience, and I, I'm I'm certainly proud of a lot of the music that came out. So. Um, you know, I mean, I, I feel there, there are things about it. I, I do feel good about still. Well, yeah. And like, I guess speaking of feeling good about it, like how did you first become aware of all those New Zealand bands and like some of the New Zealand stuff that would be put out by the label? You know, I, I, I'm trying to remember who the exact person was, but, um, uh, Patrick Amory, who, you know, he yep. was, he was a big early, uh, booster and proponent of a lot of the flying nun records. Uh, some of the guys who um, he was uh, colleagues with WHRB in Cambridge, um, Jeff Weiss and Jim Barber, they were early uh, flying non adoptees. Uh, Venus Records, which is no longer with us, but Venus Records on uh, 8th Street uh, in New York, uh, was bringing in a lot of the early flying nun stuff uh, in, into New York City. Um, and by early, I mean like two or three years after those records came out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, 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 I don't know if I can remember who the exact, uh, person was, but, uh, I mean, certainly, uh, Patrick and Byron were two of the earliest people I knew who were, 
singing and shouting the praises of things like the Verlaines and the Chills and the Clean and, um, and bands like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, started uh, kind of pen paling with Roger Shepard. Uh, started writing about those records, started playing those records on the radio. And, uh, you know, it, it was a natural, a natural thing to like, Hey, let's try to get these records out over here. Let's, let's license them and, uh, and put them out. So, um, yeah, did the, uh, did the clean and the tall dwarves and, uh, the Verlaines and the chills. Uh, the chills was an interesting one in that, uh, after initially uh, doing the licensing deal with Flying Nun, they were signed outright uh, to Homestead for one record. Um, always kind of with the knowledge that it wasn't going to be for more than one record because they did have uh, bigger labels around the world chasing them. Um, but, uh, I mean, that was, an, that was a super exciting thing because there were so many great bands coming out at that, at that point in time. And then it was like, you know... Um, Expressway Records and a lot of the noisier stranger shit that either Flying Nun was only on the periphery of or wasn't really touching. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it just sort of became very obvious that there was so much going on in New Zealand, even beyond Flying Nun, and uh, and that you know, and again to this day, that's been a really great source of music. Yeah, it's like it's it's incredible. Like you know, and I'm obviously you know discovering this stuff way after the fact, but like how even. I'm able to send this stuff to people and be like, you know, check this out. And they're like, how have I never heard of any of this stuff? And it's like, yeah, from like the Dead Sea to even more abrasive stuff to, to like, you know, Death and a Maiden, which is maybe one of the best pop songs like ever written. It's like, it's unbelievable. The bats, like all the bat stuff and they're still good. Like these bands yeah. never got bad. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and it's amazing. Yeah. It, it's completely incredible how many of them, uh, are still making really great music, and if, if they're not touring uh, regularly, then they're, they're, they're performing infrequently. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 very cool, and uh, it, it's really great to see a lot of the stuff that Captured Tracks has done the last mm -hmm. couple of years with getting getting some of those records out again, or putting out records by uh, some of the bands that never had records in the U.S. in the first place. Um, so I'm I'm really happy that people are getting to hear that stuff. Yeah, because Matador also did a did Matador do a Bats record or no? We 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 never did a Bats record. Um, there's uh, one one of the David Kilgore records we did uh, on yeah. Matador Europe. There's a Clean record we did on Matador Europe. There's a Tall Dwarves record we did on Matador Europe. Um, there's a there's a David Kilgore record that came out on One Two XU uh, reissued. Uh, a couple years ago, so there, there still is kind of like a vague connection there. If you want to go back to the debacle of um, Matador attempting to manufacture and distribute Silpreys, um, certainly Matador had some small hand in uh, a bunch of the uh, the Dead Sea records coming out domestically. Mm -hmm. um, maybe not a good hand, maybe not an effective <laughs> hand. But, um, yeah, there's there's still, there's still some connections there. Okay, um, I guess before, there's a couple more questions about Homestead. I promise it's not moving that painfully slow uh, from my okay. end. <laughs> was, uh, were there any bands you passed on? That on you, Homestead? Yeah, that you wanted, that you, like, I'm not like in general, I mean, but that you regret passing on or that, you know, history has showed that you might have made a mistake on passing on a record? Uh, that you can think of. 
Well, I don't know, but but by when you mean when you say history, you mean like like they went on to become huge and sell tons of records. Yeah, like in that regard, like you know, like or even like they they put a record later on that you were like, oh, that was like an artistically more, you know, like uh, you, you know, like certainly, you know, like you know, if you were a fan of Deep Wound and passed on Deep Wound and then heard what Dinosaur Junior did, I imagine you'd be like, oh well. I have regrets in that regard, but like, you know, or, or like, you know, Martin passing on Nirvana too, you know, for, for beggars. Yeah. I, I don't actually remember anything like that. I mean, I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure there were bands that we passed on that went on to sell tons of records for somebody. I mean, that had to have happened. Um, however, um, as far as anybody who I actually liked, who I think we should have worked with, I mean, the, the one thing I, I'll say about, about Homestead is, uh, there were too many records. I mean, we yeah. put out way, way, way too many records. So uh, it's really more a matter of w- which records uh, <laughs> I, I should have passed on just for the sake of common sense. Um, but yeah, I can't really think of anything that, uh, I mean, there, there were bands that I was a fan of that I would have liked to have worked with, but um, they simply... Well, maybe that's uh, a question I'm going for because like, you kind of yeah. did work with every band. Like, that's like, you know, when you go through the discography, it's like, who were the artists? Like, from, like, Nick Cave to, you know, the Membranes to Gigi Allen, you kind of ran the gamut. Yeah, I think, uh, I don't know if you remember the point in time when Alex Chilton kind of made his comeback mm-hmm. and started making records again. But there was sort of a inept attempt to try to, to, try to sign Alex Chilton. Um, he was not particularly interested uh, and he, that was very wise on his part. Um, so, I mean, that would be an example of a band that, that Homestead, an artist that Homestead tried to work with that wasn't interested in working with us. Um, there was probably multiple attempts at doing something with the three Johns that didn't, that didn't happen. And again, very smart on their part. Um, but other than that, I can't really, I can't really think of anybody. Um, I mean, there were, there were bands I was fans of that recorded for other labels that would have had no need yeah. to be on. So, yeah, would be, I don't want this to be like this arrogant thing of like, I got to work with every band I liked. I mean, obviously, that's not the case. But there were, there were bands that had their own relationships with very good labels that would have had no, no need to be on Homestead. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, could, I, I, could, I, I hear that. Okay, well, I guess the last question was you left in 89. Didn't yeah. did Nirvana ever approach you guys, or was that kind of after that they were looking for labels? I I don't think Nirvana ever approached Homestead, but keep in mind we got so much shit in the mail. Yeah, I mean I I can't promise you that a Nirvana cassette wasn't thrown away, but I don't I don't think that happened. Um, I mean the the sort of mass dumping of demos really began in earnest in the in the Matador years, probably because. We were getting so many, and the level of arrogance was so sky high. Um, I'm sure there's somebody who sold a million records whose cassette tape was thrown out the window of uh, of, of six six eleven Broadway at one time or another. Um, but uh, I, I mean, yeah, I if, if Nirvana approached Homestead, I'm not aware of it. So, did you ever meet Kurt Cobain? I, I met him once. Um, it's it's a somewhat embarrassing story. I was um, I was in Los Angeles. Uh, what, Pavement were playing at the Whiskey in L.A. And uh, after the show, 
an individual who worked very closely with both uh, Kurt and Courtney um, tried to introduce me to the two of them. And he said hello and shook my hand very quickly and then immediately disappeared. And I proceeded to get my ear chewed off um, by Courtney for the next five or ten minutes, which is not a unique experience. A lot of people have had their ear chewed off by her. Um, but, um, but yeah, that was our only actual like face-to-face uh, meeting. So um, you, you also, he, he, he seemed very nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know about the graffiti and everything, right? Yeah, I do, and and I mean there is a story behind the graffiti. I don't know if, if I don't know if you know the story. Well, I know I didn't. Well, I don't know. I thought the story was that he was just a huge fan of Homestead. Um, not I'm not a, I'm not aware of that. That's not that's not what the graffiti is about. <laughs> oh, what's the graffiti about then? Is something okay. else? All right. Well, just just to backtrack, there there is in circulation uh, these kind of ridiculous photos of Courtney in her uh, her and Kurt's West Hollywood apartment at the time. Some pictures of Courtney kind of splayed out on her bed, and there's a heavily graffitied wall behind her, and my name is on the wall with uh, the the A in, Ger- in Gerard is circled. <laughs> Surf, you know, anarchy style. Yeah, and that, that's on the wall. And then there's there's some other pictures that have been floating around for years of Kurt in the same bedroom with that same thing up in the background. Um, so the the backstory to this is, um, Hole had been signed by Geffen Records, and Newsweek magazine was doing an article on the phenomena of bidding war bands. Mm-hmm. Now, today, people would be like, what the hell does that mean, bidding war ban? Well, in the early 90s, it was like the weird period where uh, major labels were falling over themselves to sign Helmet or Hull or Veruca Salt or whoever to these outlandish, preposterous contracts because every other major label was chasing them, so we have to as well. Um, you know, this, this sort of pie-in-the-sky thing is going on. And Newsweek was going to do kind of like a fluffy, humorous piece about it, and they wanted to illustrate the article, so they wanted Courtney for the photo. And I think the article—I think it was pitched to Courtney as though they were doing a piece on Hulk, like not a piece on the phenomena of bands getting too much money, but rather like a, a piece on her. So she decided that. Um, the right way to illustrate this story would be sort of like as a, as, as a way of like getting revenge on her, her various detractors. So they spray painted the bedroom with the names of all these people who she's had some kind of beef with real or imagined. <laughs> so it's like, there's like K K records, nation of Ulysses and, and, and me, <laughs> So you know, I assume and, Hole and, was one of those d- rare demos that did make it into the dumpster at Homestead. I don't think we ever got. A, I don't think we ever got a Hole demo, but I, I, I absolutely uh, did my share of making fun of Courtney in various places, in print and otherwise. And she did not take kindly to it. I mean, I think at some point she probably was like, "Oh, it's all a big good gag. Who cares?" Or the sort of like. Well, we're all in the fraternity of record business scum now, so let's just let's just let it slide. Um, 
you know, I mean, we, we, I mean, we have mutual friends, so I, I don't really have anything. I don't have anything serious against her, but, yeah. um, they do this photo session for Newsweek and then the article comes out and they've cropped the photo and you can't see any of the graffiti. Oh, really? Cause that photo is though now very widely circulated. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, um, the fellow who, the, the photographer who did the session took some Polaroids in the session. Oh, and he, he sent me one of the Polaroids. I used, I used to have that up on my fridge. Um, I don't, I don't know where the other pictures came from, but yeah, there, those, those pictures are around there. I think there's like a Nirvana coffee table book that one of those pictures is in. Um, Maybe it's there's a box set too. That yeah, came and there's, 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 there's one or two scenes in that, in that, uh, that Kurt, uh, doc that was on HBO that mm-hmm. take place in that room. And, um, so yeah, for for you know a couple of decades now, like like two or three times a year, someone will be like, "Hey, have you seen this picture before? What's the deal with this?" Or someone will be like, "Oh, you must have be you must have been really good friends with Kurt Cobain." I'm like, "Nope, sorry, not 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 that's not what happened." And I, I sort of thought that was over with, and then the documentary came out, and I, I had tons of people asking me about it. So, um, it's, it's a little embarrassing, but it's kind of funny. It's yeah. Do they ever, they never, you know, cause I guess they were on sub pop, right? Oh, they were on Geffen. You're right. So you never, they never had dealings with Matador. Um, I, there is one dealing with Matt. There's, there's two dealings with Matador I can talk about since this, this is now devolved into me shit talking about <laughs> people who are dead and can't defend themselves. <laughs> Well, we did just Gigi Allen. I think, I think it's, no, this, is, this is what I always wanted to do. I always wanted to be able to like, look back on everything I've ever tried to do helping people, but then just reduce it to shit talking about dead people. That's <laughs> super, super dignified. Thank you, Damien. This is, you're really, you're really making me look good here. Hey, um, this is, this is, this is, the, <laughs> this is the podcast where we, uh, we just, we talk about punk's past and unfortunately it's not always pretty. Some some parasite who's never achieved anything is just gonna shit talk about dead people who made great records for the next two hours. <laughs> Stay tuned, everybody. Um, okay, so there's 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 two Nirvana Matador things I can tell you about. One is um, you remember the period in which they made uh, In Utero and um, there was all that nonsense going on about how. Um, Allegedly, the record company wanted Scott Litt to remix the album. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, the band was against it, and then Albini went public with his comments. Do you remember any of that stuff? Oh yes, oh yeah. That was yeah. that was just the time I was becoming very cognizant of the larger world of music journalism. Okay, so there is an individual who uh, had previously managed Nirvana and was still very close to them, who reached out to us and apparently the sort of compromise solution that had been, had been arranged was Scott Litt was going to remix in utero. That was going to be the version of the record. That was going to be the real release. However, uh, to sort of deal with the idea of, well, there's an authentic version of in utero and, um, you know, if you have a problem with, the Scott Litt version, you can, 
you can buy this limited edition real version of it, the Albini as is version. We were asked, uh, would Matador put out the, uh, the Scott lit free version of in utero on vinyl? Oh, that never came out, right? Uh, actually, I think it did eventually, eventually come out as some, like, as some like record store day special, like yeah. maybe like a, like a year ago it came out. Yeah, but I mean, like, so, because I, I think like, but the, the vinyl version of it that did come out is not a great pressing, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't heard it, so I, I can't, I can't comment. Okay. But, uh, so yeah, so we were I, asked. I have it, and I, I can comment that it doesn't sound okay. great. <laughs> okay. So we were asked, would Matador be willing to do like a limited pressing version of the Scott Lit Free version of, of in utero and my response which will probably go down in history as one of the dumbest things anyone's ever said was can we hear it first <laughs> because i mean look i gotta be honest i was not a particularly big nirvana fan yeah i mean i did i did all i mean i have to say i did actually really like in utero a lot when i heard it but uh i was not one of the people who loved Nevermind. i didn't like bleach um, I, I have, I had a lot of respect for those guys as people, but I was, I was not one of these people who was a huge fan of the band. I, I legitimately felt like there were much, much better bands all over the world. And I'm not saying that to defame anybody or, 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 or make people feel bad whose lives were changed by Nirvana. I mean, that's, that's great for them, but I was not, I, w I was not one of those people. I was not one of those people who was like, Oh my God, my world just got turned upside down. That didn't, that didn't happen for me. So, um, it always kind of feels that way though, right? Like it, it's always like, you're like that band when you're, when you're around for something before it happens, you know, it's always like, Oh, that's the band you people have chosen to take up from this genre. Um, it never feels like it's the band that it should be unless, well, you, I mean, unless you experience it from, from the other side of it, which is, this is the band that brings you into the genre. I, I think at that point I was probably a little too old to have a band of the moment thing happen. You know, I was probably, I'd already been listening to music for too long and, and, and probably too wary of all the shit that was going on with music and media at that point to like share in this sort of, um, we are the world moment of, uh, wow, punk just went number one. I just, I, I couldn't, I, I personally couldn't relate to it, but, um, th that shouldn't take away from, uh, the, the joy and the moment of discovery it brought to other people's lives. It wasn't, it wasn't for me and it wasn't supposed to be for me, but, um, getting back to this uh, story, uh, I was like, yeah, well, can, can we hear it first? Cause mm. I mean, as, as somebody who had like already kind of gone on the record as saying, uh, I, I think Nirvana are like kind of a little overrated. It, it seemed a little hypocritical that, uh, Matador would then turn around to put out a Nirvana record. Yeah. Um, and, uh, anyway, uh, the response we got to that was not particularly favorable. It was kind of like, this is, you know, borderline insulting that you want to hear the record first. <laughs> like this, this is, this is the biggest and best band in the world. And what's your fucking problem? And it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe we're not the right label to maybe it should be somebody else maybe it should be somebody else but the other uh, the other story which is is not so much a, a kurt story but maybe it's more of a mark smith story um around the time that matador was working with the fall uh the fall were asked to support nirvana 
on an eight or nine city run of North America. Oh. And these were playing uh, rather large places. We're talking like five to 7,000 capacity. The shows were either going to sell out instantly or sell out very quickly. And um, I, I believe the guarantee that was being offered per show was in the neighborhood of $1,500, which is not a huge <laughs> sum, not a, not a huge sum of money, but for, for, for opening bands of that era, um, for opening bands lot, of yeah. that era, it was, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, that, that's, that was still the pay to play era to yeah. Nirvana to their credit. I don't think ever asked someone to do a pay to play thing, but I mean, yeah, they, they could have pretty much gotten anybody they wanted for 300 bucks a night. 1500 was on the high side for what a band would get for a show like that. Uh, we forwarded the offer to Mark Smith, um, who immediately turned it down. And, um, we went back to Mark and said, look, uh, the label will help out with this a little bit. You should really reconsider. Uh, these are probably going to be the biggest shows you're ever going to play in the U S. Um, you know, it's, it's, it might be an interesting experiment, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, Mark's, <laughs> Mark's, Mark's reply was, I want $10,000 <laughs> like per, per show. And, um, yeah, that was, um, I think half Japanese ended up getting those shows. Wow. Well, it's funny because every single band that had that slot for Nirvana is kind of elevated this weird cult status, you know, like every single band that opened for them after they kind of became popular, it feels like. Yes. Well, keep, I'll keep in mind the fall did actually have their own cult status. Oh, absolutely. They're, they're kind of a popular band. They're kind of significant. I remember one time we met Marky Smith, we played a festival with the fall in England called Jackalope and he got introduced to me and he's like, Oh, fucked up from Canada and then started singing a song and walked away. And I was pretty stoked that he knew that I was in a band called fucked up. And then, you know, didn't talk to me for the rest of the night. And, switch slots with us and, and ruin the rest of the festival for us. But you know, that's a digression that we don't need to get into. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we know something it's real. It's really, uh, it's really bad to speak ill of the dead. Yeah. <laughs> just, just because, just because you encourage me to do that doesn't mean that you should do it. <laughs> no, that's true. That is true. But I think, <laughs> is he dead? No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be like, <laughs> I was going to be like, did I miss something in the last 48 hours that, uh, you know, I should have uh, maybe not been saying about. So I'm just, I'm just looking forward. I'm just looking forward to this being a big scoop on social media, you know, (laughs) definitely. (laughs) Uh, So, um, uh, Uh, I guess like, oh man, there's so many places I want to go. So many more questions I want to talk to you about, but I'm not going to force you to answer any more questions. But Gerard, before you go, I have to say that Scott Thompson was on the show from Kids in the Hall. Oh, fantastic. I love Scott. Yeah, absolutely. And I brought up the fact that uh, I was like, yeah, like, you know, you guys did that amazing, like there's that incredible soundtrack that, you know, we have this connection through because Matador Records. And he was like, oh yeah, Matador. And I'm like, so how did you pick the shampoo song for that record? And because I remember you telling Wait, me, that, is, 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 there, there isn't actually a shampoo song on the record. Yeah, there is. There is. Yeah, yeah. Now I have to. 
after this goggles. I remember the story being that I think the story was that you guys told me that it was a very expensive song to acquire. No, um, there is no shampoo song on the record. There's actually um, a tragically hip song on the record. Oh, I knew that tragically hip. Which, which uh, that was very yeah. That's that's Jake Barkin because he doesn't like the tragically hip either. Um, oh. Yeah, oh. that 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 was very much uh, the band's. Uh, sorry, that that was very much Kids in the Halls' insistence on including the tragically hip because they're so huge in Canada. They 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 were they referred to them as the hip. Okay. The hip, yeah, yeah the that's, hip. well, that's yeah. what they so, are—the hip in Canada. Yeah, yeah, they're well, they are the hip. So, um, at no, risk of starting they're, they're, a, yeah. a cross-border war, I will we'll do we'll transition off the hip conversation immediately. No, we, we we had a we had a conversation when they were literally when they were filming Brain Candy. I went to the set and I had a conversation with those guys about their ideas for the soundtrack, and everyone's throwing names around of their various favorite bands, and uh, Scott says. Um, what about something for the blank? He didn't say blank. He, <laughs> no, he said he something the for the blank. And, and, he's, and I'm like, well, like what? And he says, shampoo. Because <laughs> <laughs> I did ask him about shampoo. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I have no idea. It's probably just some Bambolini told me to mention. <laughs> oh, no, he, he suggested shampoo, but we didn't actually put uh, shampoo on the oh, record. Okay, I'm sorry. I thought... <laughs> Uh, maybe which we were inquired about, and that's why yeah, it's kind of expensive. Which, which but no, the, the funny thing is, about a year and a half after the movie opened and um, and crashed and burned, and the soundtrack went on to become one of the biggest money losers in Matador history, um, <laughs> I uh, I was eating at this place in this restaurant in West Hollywood called Bar- Barney's Beanery, a burger place, um, which is is kind of fall on, on hard times. Uh, but, uh, I was eating at one of the tables all the way in the back of the restaurant once. And, um, Kevin McDonald and Scott Thompson were eating the table in front of me. And I was trying very hard not to eavesdrop on their conversation. Cause uh, you shouldn't do that when you're whatever famous people are trying to dine out in peace. The problem is when you, when you, in that era, if you went to that place, you were constantly eating dinner or lunch with somebody you were a fan of, like sitting next to you. So it was always a little weird. Um, but uh, given the connection of the record and this funny history, I, I did after after dinner interrupt their conversation, and I went over and I said, "Hey, I'm really sorry to bother you guys, but I'm blah 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 from blah 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 records, and you guys might remember we we had those conversations about brain candy a couple of years ago." And they couldn't have been nicer. They were like, oh, cool, great to see you, et cetera, et cetera. And Scott looked at me, and almost with, with tears in his eyes, he said, man, I hope you guys didn't lose too much money on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got to hear the podcast with him. It is truly an incredible listen. Like, his punk stuff is also really awesome and deep. So the Yeah, I, I, need to, I need to hear that. He's, he's incredible. I'm a huge, huge fan of his. Absolutely. Well, um, also... I guess I lied. One more thing before you go. What's one Gigi show story? Oh God. Oh my God. I shouldn't tell you. Okay. Dead, but All right. He I'll, put it I'll, out there. He wants this out there. This is part of the legacy, right? He had the Opsen Casket funeral. Okay. Um, this is so Merle doesn't have to sell any more dreadlocks. He can just, you know, just rely on Gigi sales. Okay. I'm, I'm looking up uh, someone's name now on the, um, 
trying to look up this guy's name. I may not be able to find the name of the person involved. Okay. So uh, I think this is probably 87 or so. And um, Gigi is playing a show. The Gigi band are playing a show at the Lismar Lounge in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe I think it might even be another Steve Blush production. And um, because because no, because no other club on the right mind will (laughs) put this on. This guy um, knows music. So, uh, the day of like, like two, like maybe like two days before the show, um, our bass player, Mike Kirkland, formerly of prong announces that he can't play the gig cause he has to attend a wedding, which seems a little suspicious cause the show's on a Monday night. <laughs> um, so anyway, we, we, we very quickly scramble and, uh, George Sully of uh, the Ranch Hands agrees to fill in, learns the songs very quickly. Uh, I think Chris Lombardi got drafted in, the second guitarist, uh, very quickly. Um, Mike Edison, again, on drums, me on guitar. Um, so the night of the show rolls around. Sorry, the day of the show rolls around, and um, I get a phone call at Homestead. It's from some guy who's an independent film director. He's recently done like a remake of I Was a Teenage Werewolf, I think the Fleshtones guest starred in. And uh, he, he's working on a new kind of like comedy, horror, schlock film. And he wants to base it around like a New York touring band. Like he wants it to be like a young New York punk band. He wants them to be in the movie and they're like being pursued by a slasher or something like that. And uh, I guess he called Louise at CB's looking for ideas and she didn't want to talk to him, so she was like, call Gerard. He'll know somebody. <laughs> and I kind of want to get off the phone, but this guy is like really, really hammering me to try to find a band. So um, I, this is kind of a shitty thing for me to do, but I said, hey, look, there's, uh, there's some New York band playing the Lismar Lounge tonight. <laughs> you should go check that out. They're, 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 really, they're really punk. They're, they're very punk. You'll be into it. So... Um, get to the venue and I suddenly realized to my shock and horror that um, they serve drinks in glasses. Like, you know, like real glasses, pint glasses and shit. And I I try to explain to the club, look, um, (laughs) someone's going to get hurt. We really need plastic cups. And they're like, we're not paying for plastic cups. So I went upstairs to the bodega next to the club and bought like 200 plastic cups because I, I didn't want to lose an eye at this show. And while I'm standing in line to pay for the plastic cups, I turn around, and there's Mike Kirkland buying a beer, standing right behind me. And he's like, are you having a party? And I'm like, no, I'm not having a party. Aren't you late for a wedding? <laughs> and he's like, oh, oh, yeah, that's right. I got to go pick up my suit. See you later. So... That's what a smart person does when they're invited to play with Gigi Allen. They, they suddenly remember they have a wedding to go to. Um, so anyway, the, the show happens. Um, the good news is it actually, like, it actually finishes. We actually play like nine or ten songs, which is, which is kind of incredible. But um, during the very first song of the set, uh, Gigi kind of climbs up on one of the stage monitors grabs onto the lighting rig above the stage where all the flash pots are. Yeah. He pulls the thing down. 
Like he pulls it down, and I, I can't let see it land on somebody, but clearly it's landed on somebody. <laughs> and about two, like, like in between the second and the third song of the set, and I'm I'm trying to to tune my guitar, which isn't easy because it's dark and there's probably Gigi's blood or shit covering the tuner, so it's hard to see. Someone taps me on the shoulder. And it's that guy. It's the film director guy. And like he, he's holding like a tourniquet to the side of his head. <laughs> he's, he's bleeding profusely. <laughs> and, and he's like, he's very upset. He's very upset. And he says, which one of you guys is Gerard? And I look around and I, I, point, at, I point at Chris Lombardi and I say, that's him over there. <laughs> What would have Gigi? And you'd be like, yeah, that's Gerard Gerard over there. So so anyway, we finished the set and we're 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 I'm trying to get the get the hell out of there as fast as I can. And um Gigi is on the sidewalk talking to this guy, and this guy is like he's like he he's saying to Gigi, like, um, maybe if you like give me some money right now, we won't have to involve our insurance companies or the police. And Gigi is, of course, like, you know, covered in blood, <laughs> just wearing a jock strap. And Gigi says to him, do I look like I have $300? <laughs> and, just, and, just, and just walks away. So, um, oh, That's awesome, um, buddy. Yeah, I, I ha- actually, I have a better story, but. Um, well, go uh, if you want to tell more. I, I, can't, I, can't, I, can't, I can't tell it. I can't tell it. Okay. It involves it. I'll tell you the next time. The next time I see you somewhere, I'll tell you the story. It's just not for when, when uh, the when the person the is dead. We can tell it on the air. Okay, but but it involves uh, a young woman's uh, dogged attempts at getting Gigi to record a cover of "Paradise" by the Dashboard Light. <laughs> oh my! And the story takes a very um, a very unfortunate turn. Oh my God! Okay, well let's. That's the, I can't I can't tell that one on a podcast. No, let's leave that for off air. Uh, Gerard, I, I didn't even get to talk to you about how Matador started. I didn't get to talk to you about how you met <laughs> Chris. I didn't get to talk to you about any of that stuff. But that's well, for part hey, three. Part part three. Part three. Can't wait. Part three. Well, buddy, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Any anytime. Thank you, Gerard, for coming on the show. And as you can hear there, Gerard's got to come back for a part three, probably a part four, you know, maybe more. And if you also want to hear Gerard talk about wrestling, check out Clobbering Time. Gerard was the first guest we had on Clobbering Time, and he has some incredible – talk about someone who's had a dual life of things that I'm obsessed with. This guy has – you know, probably the only person I know that was at – the, uh, I think he was at, oh, uh, now, now I'm confused, but let's just, we'll, we'll come up with another show that you definitely, we saw SSD and also saw WrestleMania one and saw progress wrestling. So there you go. Gerard Cosloy will be back for more episodes in the future. Speaking of future next week on the show, it's someone I've been trying to have on since way back in the past. And have finally been able to make uh, a reality before the year finished. Finishing out 
2016 as my last guest of the year. Terry T. of the Cherry Blossom Clinic. Terry T., if you're a fan of The Best Show, you obviously know Terry T. Terry T. is, without a doubt, one of the coolest people I've ever gotten to meet. Gave my band our first opportunity to be on WFMU. Given a lot of great bands their first opportunity to be on WFMU. And you want to talk about someone with a lot of amazing music stories. You got to listen next week. Next week on the show, Terry T will be here. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Happy holidays, and I will see you next week.